Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is September the 30th, 2019. This is episode 2520 of the Survival Podcast. It is Monday. That means I am back in the seat here doing another show for you, kicking off a week, and it means that we are doing a listener feedback show. It has become our regularly scheduled programming during the week. Mondays are for you guys to be heard. To be heard, you know, send me an email, check at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Put TSPC in the subject line and do your, po- your, your question or your point or your article or whatever you're sending me. Kind of bottom line up front. Make your point. Hit return. If it's an article, give me a link. Hit return. Then give me your details. If you do that, you'll be more likely to get on the air because I can screen things a hell of a lot faster that way and I can only fit so much into a show. Here's what we got to you, for you today. I got a quote of the day for you on success. I think you'll like that one. And I'm fixing a miscue from last week. Doc Bones on working the night shift. Um, I don't know how uh, that didn't get in there, uh, but it didn't. So we'll go ahead and play Doc Bones' answer on that for you today. So a little bit of expert council activity. Uh, fall through spring overseeding of rabbit tractor pasture in specifically central Texas. Uh, the pitfall of treating home aquaponics like a small-scale commercial operation. I think we're talking about that. Uh, the so-called impossible burger, it's not healthy, and it is, isn't even supposed to be. You know what the impossible burger is? If you don't, maybe you're better off, but I'm going to ruin it for you and tell you uh, you can get it at a fast food joint near you soon or right now, depending on where you go for your burgers, but it is complete nutritional garbage. And that's the point. It's not supposed to be good for you nutritionally. It's supposed to be good for Mother Earth, and it's not. Uh, that leads right into a question I had on a true pastured meat food system. Is it possible, and is it really better for the environment? Let's say you don't even believe in CO2 and global warming, uh, which by and large I don't. But if you just look at the ecological effects of farming and the argument that we have to grow a lot more food to feed a cow than we could grow that food and feed it straight to humans. If we were looking at it from that argument and just what farming does to land and, and, and the resources it consumes, etc., can you really say that a true pastured meat-based food system that fed humans the majority of their calories from fat and, and, and protein is a better system ecologically? The answer is yes, and I'll explain how. Uh, two more simple but useful life hacks. And um, I have a question on the impeachment that's going on. And um, I'm going to talk about I'm not going to talk a lot about this. This is going to go on for months. Um, but I had a question that basically, boy, it, it looks really stupid for Pelosi and the Democrats to do impeachment. So if it's that stupid, why are they doing it? I'll, I'll give you the answer you're probably not going to hear on television and I'll tell you what I think is going to come from this, which is, well, I, the cementing of the re-election of Donald Trump, unless some bombshell falls out of this thing that hadn't yet, uh, or the economy takes a crap, you got Trump 2020 to 2024. And uh, talk about all of that and more in just a bit. Before we do, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one today is Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor, like a superstore for everything prepping. 
you can find it, if, you, if it's for your prepping, you can find it at SafeCastle. They have an amazing discount program. You get discounts on everything they sell. They sell that program for $29 a year, and it's a pretty good deal. If you're an MSB member and support my show uh, through my membership program, you get their membership for free for life. You can't even buy it, but you get it for free for life if you are a member of uh, the MSB. Next up today, KnifeKits.com. I think KnifeKits uh, is one of our oldest sponsors. I mean, we have a group of about six of our sponsors that have been with us for more than nine years. That's, that's kind of crazy in the world of podcasting. Been very, very loyal to us. They offer you the ability to get into knife making as a novice or even a complete, like a novice at least has done it before. Like if you have no idea what you're doing, uh, with a kit, a little bit of materials, maybe a book or a DVD that they offer there, you can make your own first knife like this month. And every time you make one, you'll get better. I think sometimes people don't take the step of doing something like making a knife from a kit because they think, well, it won't be that great. Eh, your first one, maybe, you know. But I'll tell you what, uh, Master Knife Maker, Patrick Rohrman of the Expert Council on MT Knives, he told me when I look at knives now that people were happy to pay $500 for, you know, eight years ago that I made, I'm not happy with them at all. Like, the quality of what I do today is so beyond that. And that was good quality. I mean, I, I have a knife he made back then when he feels embarrassed by it. I love that knife. It's got mammoth tusk handles and stuff, which, by the way, we got from knife kits. Um, but if a person that, that's that level can improve what they're doing, one, they're already at that level. And, of course, you know, when you start, you start. And I think this is a great project to do with your kids. It's a great project to learn how to use tools. It's a great skill. It's a great hobby. It's a great potential side hustle or full-time business. Uh, and you can get all, all just get it all started with KnifeKits.com. It also does a discount for MSB members. With that, let's talk about our quote of the day today. This was by a guy named William Feather. William Feather was an author and publisher in the United States. Uh, he lived from 1889. All the way up until 1981. And uh, he was uh, a guy that was even known for something called featherisms, like a spiritualism, right? Just things that this guy wrote or said <clears throat> that kind of stuck with people. He was never a hugely well-known writer. Uh, he ran his own magazine and publication, wrote for several other newspapers and, and, and things like that. Wrote quite a few books. He did okay. He made a living as a writer. Uh, but, you know, he's not a guy that most people would recognize the name. But he said some really interesting things, including some of his featherisms. And one of his featherisms when he was talking about success in business all the way back in the 1920s was, success seems to be largely a matter of hanging on after others have let go. I love that quote. What it makes me think of is they used to do a lot of this stuff like back in the 70s, 80s, 60s even, uh, where they had these competitions like uh, a car dealership would run a competition, get a free Mustang, Ford Mustang. You know, Everybody goes in and you touch the car. And the last person touching the car doesn't fall asleep, doesn't let go, can't switch hands, just stays there. And it would go for days and days. And it would always end up three or four people would be there after like eight hours. I mean, in the first eight hours, it would call out like 90% of the people that got in. And then it would end up like two or three days in, there would be two. And this wasn't a matter of skill, it was a matter of will. And that one person that just wouldn't give up. Got the car. And there was a lot of things. There were dancing competitions like this where couples would dance in like a dance marathon and whoever quit dancing was out. Um, there was a lot of things like that back then. And I think it was maybe because we intrinsically knew that, that there was a modicum of, 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 of a truth about success there that you didn't have to be good at dancing to win the dance competition if it was just a dance marathon. You just had to keep going. Now, there's the other side of this. 
Holding on is great. If you're holding on to a cliff and if you let go, you're going to bash into the rocks below, you've got to hang on and pull and do all you can to get up that cliff. However, if you're holding on to a rope that was tied to a boulder and the boulder has slipped and is falling down the cliff, you also have to know when to let go. With that, let's go ahead and get into things. Like I said, last week we had a question for Doc Bones on working the night shift uh, for the Expert Council show. And somehow I, let, I was like, man, that show ended up pretty short, even on a long closing segment. Well, when you leave a segment out from old Doc Bones, that's how that happens. So, Doc, sorry to have uh, mis misplayed your, your call last week or not played your call last week. Let's go ahead and, uh, and make it happen this week. And let's hear what should people do who are going in to work the night shift to have better health and longevity in their lives. Hi, Joe Alton MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, with over a thousand articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. Together with my wife, Amy Alton, we're the authors of the Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, The Survival Medicine Handbook, now in its 700-page third edition. Also, our newest book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide, and the designers of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert council comes from Bailey, who writes, Hello, my question is for old Doc Bones, if he can be reached. Yes, you never know where I am. Do you have any advice for people working night shift to live a healthier lifestyle? I've been on night shift for over a year, still having a hard time establishing a sleep schedule and feel extremely tired most of the time. This severely affects my ability to make the most of my dash. Any advice? Well, Bailey, you've got over to the dark side, and having spent years delivering babies and dealing with emergencies in the middle of the night, it can be very difficult for us non-nocturnal animals to adjust to a nighttime schedule. There are a few tips I can give you, though, that might help. First, and maybe hardest, You have to stick to a routine seven days a week, even on days off. If you try to switch your biological clock over to daytime hours on a day off, it throws off the entire routine. You're going to feel tired all the time. I'm talking about meals as well as sleep. Now, this may be difficult to manage if you've got kids or other obligations that have to be fulfilled during the day, but try to arrange your life so that your schedule isn't thrown off so much. Most importantly, you have to make the most of the time you're asleep. Take a warm shower or bath before going to bed so that you feel clean and relaxed. Get bed sheets and linens that make you feel comfortable, as well as a room temperature maybe on the cooler side, if at all possible. Some people enjoy some chamomile tea as a relaxant as well before going to bed. The bottom line, relax. If you're exercising, by the way, which is a great thing to do, do it before work and not before bed. You should try to block out light as much as possible. That is one of the most important things, I think. Wearing an eye mask and making sure that your windows are covered completely with an opaque curtain or other barrier, that is so important, I think. You have to really minimize the light. Pitch black, if at all possible. You should also minimize noise that could possibly wake you up. Some people do this with earplugs, others with white noise. There are lots of smartphone apps that you can use, a fan running, an air purifier. Lots of ways to get a steady amount of sound that'll block out sudden noises that might wake you up. Of course, the basic medical advice applies. Eat a healthy diet, stay hydrated, stay away from too much alcohol or caffeine. Drinking coffee, by the way, while you work all night long is going to make it difficult to sleep when you get home. Instead, when you hit that wall at about 3 a.m., drink a glass of ice-cold water. Give that a shot. You'll hear that taking drugs like Benadryl will make you drowsy and cause you to go to sleep. 
and indeed they will, but you'll feel groggy when you wake up and you might be less alert during work time. Bailey, night shift is not for the weak of heart and you'll never have to prove your courage, to me at least, in any other way. Different things work for different people, but some of these tips will help make life easier. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, don't forget to subscribe to our website at doomandbloom.net and get yourself medically prepared for the uncertain future by checking out Nurse Amy's quality medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. Thanks again. All right, so now we got uh, we got that one worked out. Um, next up, I got a question here. This did actually come to me in an email, but only because I said, hey, email me that and I'll take care of it myself today. This came from our MeWe Monday chat. If you want basically unprecedented access to being able to communicate with me, you need to join MeWe and get on the, fiber, uh, the, the Survival Podcast Hangout group and show up on Monday mornings for MeWe Monday chat because, I mean, it's not that huge a number of people that do it. And if you want input on what goes on the show, if you want to influence what goes to the expert council, Uh, if you want to get just quick answers from me on things that, you know, maybe you don't always get an answer to an email, uh, I've made a commitment to be there every Monday morning at 10 a.m. from 10 to 10.30 to 10 to 11, depending on what's going on that day. And uh, pretty much I answer almost everything that pops up in that chat room. So um, somebody asked me in the chat room this morning as far as a question for possibly Jeff Lawton, um, a pasture seed mix for uh, pastured rabbits. Uh, in particular, this... This is in Austin, which has a climate very similar to my own, uh, and the person has land that's not as bad as mine. I can tell by the way he describes it, but uh, very similar to mine, and it's got a lot of caliche, which is basically a, a crumbly limestone type of soil, uh, and I, I guarantee you if that's what he has for subsoil, you keep going, you get limestone slab. That's the caliche is... When you have caliche, the question is how much caliche before the slab, not, you know, is there sand under the caliche, because that's not how that works. Um, so he's got shallow soils, deeper than mine, but shallow soils, so probably a couple feet, uh, at least, that, that like, long, uh, deep prairie grasses and stuff could get into the caliche itself, um, and he tractors rabbits, and he wants to know what should he overseed to improve the overall health of his pasture with uh, in fall through winter and spring? And the answer is, well, first of all, before we even discuss that, pasturing the rabbits will improve the pasture. Most of the people who have built amazing pastures, including people like Joel Salatin, have spread very little to no seed at all. They just pastured the animals, tractored the animals, etc. So you're going to get improvement just by doing what you're already doing. And you probably have already noticed that. The next thing is, when I first got into this, I was like, I'll spend the money. I don't care. I'll get tons and tons of seed. And I'll spread ass loads of seed. And um, I've learned, and I know uh, my friend Ben Falk up in New England has learned this as well from reading his writing, uh, his book specifically, that less is more when it comes to seeding pasture, especially in seeding behind. So for overseeding, you know, maybe you, you read the label on the seed and you put it in a spreader and you set the spreader to a certain thing and you spread it. But when, whenever, I don't care what time of year it is, whenever you move animals, come behind them and throw some seed mix, just a little bit, sparingly, 
And over time, you're going to build a seed bank. You understand that a lot of these seeds are going to get sit there on the surface. Some are going to get eaten by birds and all. But a lot of it's going to end up in the soil and not germinate. Uh, I've had things germinate in my soil here that I'm like, what the what the hell what the hell kind of plant is that? Where'd that come from? And I'll look at it and I'll finally be like, as it grows, like, oh, I know what that is. And you're like, I've never seen that plant on my property ever. But I know I threw seed down for it four years ago. And the timing got right, and the, the, the trigger happened. It rained at the right time. The temperature was right. It duck shit on it, whatever. So small amounts of seed, sparingly, behind the animals all the time whenever they move. Now, our blistering heat here in Texas, I guess you could probably take about three months off of doing that here because you probably will you will probably literally roast the seeds. Uh, in July, August, and early September. So maybe you, you, you don't do it then. rest of the time, come up with a seed mix. Uh, he also said he already has white and crimson clover. The good news is the best time in the world to plant that in our climate is like two weeks from now. Like it will still be warm long enough to get it well germinated and get it going. Uh, your rabbits will love it. The bad news is... And this is why you want to do a mix. It is only going to find a few places where it really does good, especially the white clover. The red and the crimson type clovers and stuff, they are pretty good at like just kind of disappearing and coming back. Um, the Dutch white, New Zealand white, those types of clovers, um, they either make it or they tend not to. And uh, I have had a few places where I've gotten patches of it to grow here. Uh, the ducks love it to the point, though, where it can't really get ahead of steam going. Uh, you're tractoring, so she'd have a lot better with that. So I definitely would go ahead and throw those soon. You, probably what you need to look to is, and it does, I'm not even really going to species here. You want a native, Texas native grasses mix is the best thing that you can do. Na native perennials, e even better, right? Um, you can also look up things like caliche, caliche seed mix. Those two would be where I would go. What I would definitely supplement beyond the mix that you would find uh, is going to be um, alfalfa. And what I would do for alfalfa seed is I would go to a local agricultural supply store And I would get whatever alfalfa they recommend. Because alfalfa is in the world of dormant, semi-dormant, and non-dormant. And you're probably going to be with a semi-dormant, non-dormant variety here in Texas. But whatever they're selling to farmers is what is going to grow best for you. And don't worry, even though there has been at least some playing around with GMO alfalfa, which is just stupid and not necessary, um, most, of the, most of the alfalfa you're going to get is not GMO. And don't worry if it's a hybrid. It will self-reseed, it will grow, it will spread. And if you're dealing with caliche and limestone, you're dealing with alkalinity, and probably the best crop like this you can get is going to be alfalfa. Additionally, I would look to medics, um, Black medic would be a great crop, but it will be probably very hard to find any significant quantity of seed in black medic. But if you know someone that has it um, and they let it go to seed, you can go harvest a little. Because a little bit just forms a beachhead and all of a sudden it takes off. And medic looks a lot like a clover, except it's not a clover. Um, sal 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 uh, salvia, I can't say it right. Sal, sal salvia. 
Medic. I, I, I'll link to it in the show notes. I don't know why, but my tongue will not make the words Salvia Sale Medic. I think that's right. Um, is probably the one that you can get in quantity um, and will do the best for you in your area. And you can get it from, I believe it's Hearn. H-E-A-R-N Seeds has Sal Salvia Medic. And again, I will link to that specifically since I can't seem to get it to come out of my mouth right for some reason today. Another thing that you can get from Hearn is uh, plantain seed. Now, I would definitely try to plant any and all plantain you can get your hands on uh, in pasture, especially pasture for rabbits, poultry, etc. But what I would look to be able to buy, because again, finding like plantago major and stuff like that, you know, by the pound, it's almost impossible to find. Because it's such a weed that shows up wherever it's going to do well that Planting it really doesn't seem to work. I've put so much Plantago Major seed on my ground here, and it hasn't grown for crap for me. Uh, my buddy Roy up in West Virginia harvested. God, it had to be three-quarters of a pound of plantain seed, and I've put out maybe half of it uh, last spring. I saved some. I'm going to give it another go as we go into winter this year. Um, but it just, I mean, this is stuff that where it grows, it grows, it damn near grows on the sidewalk. Right, I mean, not just in the cracks. It almost seems like it grows in the sidewalk. And yet it just doesn't seem to want to grow here at all. But what has grown here very well and absolutely disappears in the middle of summer and comes back in late fall through winter and blows up in the spring is a plantain species called tonic plantain. Uh, and this is grown mainly for cattle, but rabbits will absolutely eat it. It grows really tall for a plantain. It's a narrow-leaf tall plantain. Again, it's called tonic plantain, and a pound of that will go really far, really far. And once it establishes, it will throw on these seed heads. As long as you let some of it not get eaten or cut, these seed heads will be about a foot tall, and they're just hundreds and hundreds of seeds per seed head and it will start to naturally select the ones that are most adapted and if it lives here it will live anywhere and th so those are the ways that i would go a good native terry uh, native texas or native uh, south central southwestern plains grass mix uh, a good quality alfalfa a good quality medic Uh, and a good quality plantain. And I wouldn't hesitate to also throw things like, because you can get real cheap, like this is probably not worth buying online. Go down to your seed store, and you can probably, like my seed my seed and feed and ag, ag store, a place called Russell Feeds, they sell bulk seed by the scoop. That's like an A, B, C, or D scoop. And you just scoop it yourself, put it in the bag, and write on the bag, and they, they charge you whatever you write on our system because we're that worried about it. And I think a... A D scoop, which is like a half a cup of turnip seed, is like four bucks. And you can probably get it cheaper than that. But that's a lot of turnip. And again, this is like sparse just here and there because what you're going to get then is you get that turnip forming a big old bulb. And then the rabbits will, of course, eat turnip greens and now, but then you're not going to feed your rabbits 100% on that. But it's going to die back. And then that bulb is going to rot and that's going to feed worms and soil and build soil and build depth daikon radish as well you may be able to find that at your seed store uh if you can find the brand called tillage radish it's a really robust daikon uh and what you'll find when you have really hard soils is your daikon will grow as far down as it can grow and it'll start growing up it's crazy but they'll do that uh and that is another fantastic thing for rabbits itself reseeds this is the time to plant all that stuff so great question and for your climate that's that's about as good an answer as you're going to get i think
Okay, so um, before I go on to the next one real quick, um, I went to get those links to make sure I didn't forget to add them to the show notes. And the South Southern Medic is no longer uh, being sold by uh, Hearn Seeds. What I put a link in for and is really worth looking at, and it's something they hadn't had before, is Perigio Barrel Medic. And I may get a pound or two of that for myself. I have a link to the Tonic Plantain. And a couple things I forgot to say about that that I should have is, number one, Uh, a lot of the mixes you buy will have a lot of annual ryegrass in them, anywhere from 30 to 50%. Try not to buy those mixes. You can go buy a 50-pound bag of annual ryegrass for like 25 bucks. And annual rye would be a great thing to throw right now, too. Um, rabbits will love it. You, when you want, If you want to give them some extra, you can hand-sickle on a couple chops, and boom, there you go. Uh, and as it dies back, it's going to feed the soil. Um, additionally, another thing you can look at is bird's foot trefoil. Uh, you can get that at Hearn. And chicory. Chicory, I, sh I can't believe I didn't mention it. it, has done really well for me here. Uh, it's a biannual. It grows low. kind of looks similar to plantain in a way, uh, but not the same on the ground when it's low. And then it'll go into a second cycle where it throws up a big, giant stem with pretty blue flowers on it. And uh, it'll reseed. And a lot of this stuff's expensive. Just realize, again, you don't need a lot. Five pounds of plantain seed is a lot of flipping plantain seed. A lot. They're very small seeds. So, uh, with that, let's go to the next one. So, another thing that came up in MeWe chat was uh, about aquaponics. And uh, the person wanted to know do I do deep water raft or do I do just wicking beds? Uh, and what I do is a combination. I do wicking beds and I primarily, primarily do what you call as a flow through wicking bed. In other words, I actually have my aquaponics tank where fish live uh, pumping, and a pump in there is pumping water to a bed. That's a wicking bed. And that wicking bed, let's say if it's 24 inches deep, maybe has 7 inches of uh, lava rock in the bottom and a separator and an overflow at that 7-inch point. And water is constantly running through that bottom. And it, the water wicks up through the soil. So I'm growing in soil, but I'm using moving water, bringing extra nutrient into the wicking bed. And that has lots of advantages, but the chief among them is the bed never dries out. The plants are always, you might have the water from the surface when you first plant, but once roots get down in there, and it encourages, since it, the soil gets moister as you go deeper, just like in nature, um, it sends a lot of roots down. So that's the primary thing I grow in. I also do ebb and flow because I think it's so powerful from a standpoint of rooting, cuttings, cloning plants, and certain things just grow really good in ebb and flow. I love, 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 love me some watercress in my salads. A watercress is one of my favorite things. The bite, it's just, like, to me, there's nothing else like it. And you really can't grow watercress unless you have an aquatic or aquaponics-type system. So I grow a lot of watercress in my ebb and flow, uh, and it goes bonkers in there. And anytime you want more, you just take a piece off and stick it in, and two days later, it's growing, right? So I, I do that. Um And I do do what I would call deep water, but I don't do deep water uh, in the way that most people think of with rafts. I think that that may work for your home system, but it may not be the best idea. And, and I've done some deep water rafting, and it, it works okay. And I, I guess the best place for it is when you have a tank that's going to contain fish, and you don't really have anything else you can put over top of it, you can float a raft on there and, and do it. And the fish will kind of eat at the roots and all, depending on what kind of fish you got. But um, especially like for one, at one time I was running uh, a deep water tank within one of my systems, a 100-gallon tank, 
And the main thing I kept in it were very small sunfish and or minnows. Because it basically was a bait tank for when I went fishing. So I had my own live bait store in my backyard. And I've, I've since changed that over. I'm not doing that anymore. But that worked really good is just take a piece of foam and make a raft and throw cups in there and grow lettuce. And, and then the minnows really did a good job of keeping the roots clean. And it worked pretty good. And it made use of the space. But rafting is really something that's done more at a commercial space. And, and the reason they do it is they can make... You think about the space that you, you're going to do with commercial. You're going to take up a lot of space. So commercial, even though it's going to take up less space than, let's say, a farm that's growing in the soil, uh, with aquaponics you can do a lot more stacking, this, you know, they're going to put in a high tunnel. They're going to do something that's 30 to 60 feet wide, maybe 100 feet long, a massive structure, thousands of square feet. So they need to keep cost per foot of grow space as low as possible. So what's cheaper than scraping out a hole, a big square hole, uh, that's maybe 10 inches deep and taking a cheap liner and laying it in there, and then you just float rafts. And your rafts are just long, so you just kind of pull them in, and you harvest, and you put your new cups in, and you stick them out. And that's, that's what they do. And it makes perfect sense, because they're trying to grow 50,000 heads of lettuce a month. You're not going to do that. And so to me, it, I'm not saying not to do deep water, and I know some of you do some really cool systems. To me, when we try to pretend we're something we not, we're not, we use inappropriate technology. And I don't mean like you're bad, it just doesn't work as good as it could, right? So to me, for deep water type systems and stacking in as much in a small space as possible, which is what most home growers want to do, because the reason we're doing aquaponics in the first place, if we're at home grower, one of the reasons is we're space challenged, right? So you take pipe, like four-inch pipe, you take a hole saw, you drill holes in it, they're a little bit smaller than whatever size net cup you're using, you take end caps and put two end caps on it, and you put a drain so water can get out the bottom, and you bring water into the top somewhere, and water just flows through the pipe. And you just set, so you, what you can do is you put a small bulkhead uh, in the bottom of the pipe if you want to, or when you put that end cap in, you can plumb in a bulkhead on the end cap, and then you can put a little extension on that bulkhead on the inside so that you can adjust how much water is held in the pipe. And it can go, if you want it to, it can go all the way up to the edge of those where the net cup sits. As long as it doesn't spill out that hole, you're good, right? And then that water can come in there really slowly. I mean, you can use a very light, small-scale pump for this. You can use a little bitty fountain pump. As long as it's got enough head to reach as high up, and as long as water's moving, it's good. So then, if you're going to be going in, you can take a 10-foot piece of pipe, and even spacing your plants a foot apart, you could put 10 lettuce plants in one pipe. But you don't need a foot. You can put in more like 18, having plenty of space for these plants to get really big. And if we took a 10-foot area and we had two pipes, we had 36 heads of lettuce. Let me tell you something. You're on 36 heads of lettuce in an aquaponics deep water system. Unless you have like 100 people that love lettuce in your house, you have more lettuce than you need. And here's a really cool hack. I learned this from my buddy David. So what you do is those net cups will generally fit in the mouth of a one-quart ball jar, the small mouth size. Depending on, depending on what size neck cup you use, right? It's up to you, right? 
So what you do is you fill up a couple, three jars, quart jars, in your house. You go out to your aquaponic system. You pull three, four, whatever number of heads of different lettuces you want. You bring them in your house. And you sit them in the quart jar. And then you take shears and you cut your lettuce and you just keep using lettuce that way until you're like, yeah, those heads are kind of really cut down now. And if they've only been cut once or twice, then you take them out of your jar, you go back out to your aquaponic system, you pop them right back in there, they get kicked on with the nutrient and flowing water again, and they grow back. And that way you have absolute the freshest lettuce in the world sitting on your table. You can even have like a salad bar for your friends and have ten different heads of lettuce all sitting there alive in jars on a serving bar where people come by with scissors and take their own leaves off. So that's a really cool thing you can do there. And I think that approach makes a lot of sense. And I just want to kind of bring up today, I think one of the big mistakes we make as home aquaponics enthusiasts is trying to say, well, since the big guys do, that are growing 50,000 heads do this, then I should do this too. The primary methodologies, the, like the strawberry towers, Dutch buckets, ebb and flow, wicking bed, deep water, all of that makes sense. You look at what they do and you put as much variety into a system as you can. And, yeah, sure, that all makes sense. But when you think about how you integrate those methods, and I want to kind of put in a, a, a big plug here for the concept of deep water. It is the one with the least points of failure. There's really not much to get clogged. It's not like an ebb and flow bed where if the flow slows down, it won't trigger. Or if the flow speeds up, it won't break, Right? Uh, wicking beds can and do get clogged with um, a very simple deep water system. As long as your return lines are as big as you can make them for what you're doing, the odds of them getting clogged are pretty low. And if a pipe system gets clogged, it's probably the, the plant that's closest to it, the roots went down in it, so you just lift the plant out of it. So that, that's just something to keep an eye on there. Um, other than that, it's just the simplest way to do things. And if you think about it, if you have enough room to, let's say, go four or five pipes high, you can have one pipe, drain to the next 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 pipe, and go back to your sump, your fish tank. And if your fish tank's right under the pipes, it doesn't even matter if anything leaks. It's still going back into the fish tank. Now, you might want to take and have a second pump that just air with a spray bar down in there, I would do that. The good news is you can use two pumps that are so small, they'll use less energy than one pump that you would typically use to grow that much food. And you now have redundancy. If the, air, the spray bar pump dies, you still have the plant pump going. And if the plant pump dies, you still have the spray bar pump going. So your fish live... And your plants can live a long time with the water that's held in the pipes. Because remember, we're not ebbing and flowing now. Those pipes are, if, it's, if the water stops running, those pipes are going to stay as full as you've set the level. All of them will. So that's just to kind of open your mind to things outside of, hey, I'm small-scale commercial even though I'm not commercial. We should be growing to our needs, not trying to emulate somebody else. And like I said, two, two four-inch uh, 10 foot pipes and that could be two 10 foot long or it could be four that are five foot long cut in half end caps plumb together in one stack and how much lettuce can a, a freaking family eat and then if you have a greenhouse and you're starting lettuce starts 
And once you get things down, like, okay, today I'm going to plant six new plants. And this week, those guys, those six plants are going to um, kind of graduate to, let's, let's go ahead and give them to the chickens. They've regrown like three times. And then these guys here are going to go in there. And then you just have that rotation going. And God, I got to tell you, it costs a little bit more. But as much as you get out of one lettuce seed, pelleted lettuce seed is your friend. Because then you can plant one seed in one pot. But what about if it doesn't sprout? Okay, when you need six, plant eight. If you're not getting at least that much germination out of your lettuce seed, you need a new supplier. And instead of two seeds in each one, you've only planted two extra seeds. You see what I'm saying? All right, let's move on to another one there. Okay, next up, I believe a full-scale war is coming on people that eat a primarily carnivorous diet. And I have two articles to share with you today. One you can read for yourself, because I read the first two sentences, and I felt my IQ score falling. But it was about saving the planet and global warming. And I don't even know where it goes from there. Um, but it, I, I, couldn't, I could not... I absolutely could not read it. Like, the level of brain pain, and it ain't cognitive dissonance. It, it's literally, the stupid is so strong, it's like giving your brain cancer on purpose. It was called, If Everyone Ate Beans Instead of Beef. The next article that I was sent that kind of relates right into this was on Gizmodo, not exactly a bastion of reality, uh, and also angles that way and hurts your brain, but not anywhere near as bad as about the Impossible Burger. And here is what Ryan uh, Mandeblom, whatever, uh, says about the Impossible Burger. Impossible Burgers aren't healthy, and that's the whole point. Here's what he has to say. I can only read three paragraphs of this because it just, it just derails itself into stupidity on top of stupidity. When you go to a restaurant to order a hamburger, do you really think to yourself, ah, oh, yes, this meal will be so nutritious? Well, Ryan, I don't know. It depends on what damn restaurant I'm going to and what kind of burger they're giving me. And what kind of crappy bun you're wrapping it in, I guess. Or do you try to ignore the caloric count while thinking, I want a greasy sandwich that will taste so good but make me feel so bad. I'm guessing it's closer to the latter. So why is it that suddenly a big deal that plant-based burgers designed to mimic the flavor and texture of beef hamburgers while potentially being better for the planet aren't that healthy? You might have noticed the nutritionists in the meat industry are dunking on an increasingly popular plant-based burgers, such as the Impossible Burger and the Beyond Burger, but that, but because they're not healthier than beef burgers. But that's not the point. If you're wanting a nutritious, heart-healthy meal, you should, should and can eat vegetables and whole grains and fruits and all other stuff that everyone knows they should be eating, and this is me speaking now, that will screw your life up, blow up your blood sugar levels, destroy your liver. You know, that stuff is what you should be eating if you want to be healthy. Back to his article. The goal of taking on a vegetarian or vegan diet, or even just eating less meat, is to support animal welfare and choose foods whose production contributes to less global warming. A vegetarian diet is not necessarily healthier than an omnivore diet, and that's okay. The nutritional status of the Impossible Burger doesn't matter, because it's like a regular hamburger. It's a treat. You shouldn't eat an Impossible Burger every day, just like you shouldn't eat a hamburger every day. Here's the problem, Ryan, for your teeny tiny brain. The Impossible Burger has taken the only redeeming quality of the hamburger, which is the burger itself, and ruined it with a toxin made out of legumes and other substances that should not go in the human body. Not only is it not healthier, 
than a meat burger. Even if we're comparing it to a CAFO-raised factory meat burger. Because the nutritionists are comparing it based on their limited understanding and their freaking programming as to what your caloric macro yield should look like. In other words, your fat, calories, and carbohydrates. That's as far as they're going. And they have that all wrong, right? There's a lot of fat in it. That's why they say it's bad. <sighs> it's awful. And the belief that we should be eating less meat to save the planet is beyond moronic. And if you look at what it takes to grow beans in a bean field, and if you read this other article, I warn you, do it at your own risk. I mean, the virtue signaling coats you like, like sewage when you read the first two sentences. It's that bad. But what this tells me is that, here we go, the, the cow farts of the Green New Deal have grown into a war on all things carnivore. And it's happening right at a time when more and more people are coming to the realization that a diet based on fruit and grain is the worst nutritional advice for human beings that has ever been given by well-meaning people. And as I've said, and you cannot, un you cannot misunderstand, or misunderstand how big a deal this is. When I had Ken Berry on last week, the forces and the powers that will rise up in opposition to humanity realizing they've been lied to and that we have been basically giving ourselves a recipe for type 2 diabetes, obesity, metabolic syndrome, and everything else that comes with it, following the advice of eating high-sugar diets, which grain-based diets and legume-based diets are high-sugar diets. There is no real difference in one carbohydrate to the next unless we're talking insoluble fiber, soluble fiber, or carbohydrate as a whole. If you go into fiber, it's a big difference. Complex carbohydrate, simple carbohydrate, very little difference. Very little difference. You give me 10,000 carbohydrates worth of potato, you give me 10,000 carbohydrates worth of sugar, or you give me 10,000 carbohydrates worth of barley. And if I make alcohol out of all of them and put them through a still, I will give you the exact same number of ounces in alcohol, and your body is going to process those carbohydrates the same way I make alcohol. Not the exact same way, but as far as the energy yield that comes from them and in being in the form of sugar, it is going to be the same. That is what is going to happen. That is biology and that is chemistry. And you can get mad and you can yell and you can dance on top of the food pyramid and you can scream that your doctor says this and you cannot change that. That is science. That is science. If we take fiber out of the equation, there is little to no difference between a hundred carbohydrates and how the body uses it and what it does to blood sugar of whole wheat as there is from a hundred carbohydrates of pure white Sugar, I'm sorry. I know they told you in school. I know you've been programmed. It's not effing true. But this is trillions of dollars. Trillions. You have to understand what a trillion really is. People don't get how big these numbers are anymore. A billion is not a hundred million. It's a thousand million. When you get to 1,000 million, you get to 1 billion. A trillion is a thousand, a, a thousand billion. So a trillion dollar industry is 10 
thousand million dollars. And this is a multi-trillion dollar industry that is going to fight for its very survival. And if that means killing people with bad nutritional advice, it's a trillion dollars. I'm sorry, that's what they're going to do. If it means lying, that's what they're going to do. And if it means vilifying the people telling you the truth, that is what they're going to do. And getting kids who already eat junk food to think they're saving the planet by eating bean curd is a pretty easy way to do that. So I'm not flipping out about the Impossible Burger. Don't get me wrong. It's the overriding message that not only is this better for the planet, not only is this better for you, but it's better for the planet. Eating vegetarian is better for you. It doesn't have to be. I mean, you could make bad vegetarian choices. That's the message. But you could make good ones. But even if you don't want to make good ones, you're, it's still better off for the planet, which will morph into, I promise you, in the next couple of years. Well, maybe we would be a little bit healthier if we went more on a meat-based diet, but the planet can't handle it. They are going to fight this. Because the this is so hard to understand, because I'm about to explain like what it's going to take to do it, and the simple is dramatically, the solution is dramatically simple. It's almost embarrassingly simple. But that's in the action. What to do is simple. I'll admit, the economic ramifications of decoupling and retooling the entire food industry is not simple. And it's going to cause multi-million, multi-million, multi-billion dollar conglomerates to go out of business if they can't adapt. And some will be able to and some won't. You Just look at a grocery store and think of 70% of the products in that grocery store fall under the monkier of things you really shouldn't eat. That's the truth right now. Under a new diet, diet paradigm. Now, we are always going to have people eat stuff like that, but as a core of your diet, as the primary source of your calories, it, it lies under where you shouldn't eat it as a primary source of calories. Got it? Okay. So now take your grocery store industry and think of how many grocery stores there are just in your town and how big they are and how much food they move. And think about the fact that 70% of that food is really not fit for human consumption. But let's say that only half the people get the message. And the volume of those foods decrease in that store by 50%. And it becomes 35 versus 70% of the food in the store is really not fit for human consumption. Can you even begin to understand what that means? Now think about the farm industry, the farm equipment industry. The, are you starting the fertilizer industry, the pesticide industry, the herbicide industry? Think about all of it. Then think about the fact that when we discuss this new model, a lot of your CAFOs, the ways they produce meat now, your, your confined uh, animal feeding operations, right? they are going to go away. Or there will at least be a lot less of them. And understand that one thing the vegans and vegetarians get right is a whole shitload of our agricultural system grows to grow corn and soy and other shit that is harvested and then trucked to be fed to cows and pigs and chickens. Right? So now that part of field grown goes way, way down. What's that mean to... You, you, you see, you got to start thinking about the, the second, third, fourth tiers. What does that mean to John Deere? What does that mean to Kubota? 
What does it mean to YT? What does it mean to all the people that build combines? And, and it doesn't mean that there won't be a call for any of them anymore, but... Right, because what they're banking on is everybody eating their Impossible Burgers, having great big bellies, and dying of type 2 diabetes by 45, but robots will run the farms. That's what they're banking on right now. So how big is the opposition to the truth right now? And before I go into the next question, and I know some of you, it's hard to believe you're being lied to this much, that your kindergarten teacher who taught you the food pyramid was not by her own intent, but lying to you. That you've been programmed to believe this. I know it's hard, but how many things do you think the government has lied to you about in your life? So whenever you're told the government's lying, it doesn't mean they are. It doesn't mean they're always lying. But you should at least, the person that tells you they're lying, you should give credence to the possibility that they might be right and do true independent, not reading confirmation bias confirming research into the claim. Because that's the whole game of this system, to program us. But what amazes me is the average person, I could probably come up with ten big things in the world. Nutrition, climate, medication, right? I could keep going. I come up with a list of like ten. And the average person, I'd say, of these ten things, how many of them that the, are there that the government is lying about? And most people, left or right on the political spectrum, will give you a number between seven and eight. And the only thing that will change is which are the two or three that people will say, oh, but they're telling the truth about that. And they're telling the truth about that. If they're big things that lead to centralization and centralized control, why would they tell you the truth? Why would you ever accept that they would tell you the truth? Why would you ever take at face value that that's true just because it sounds good? Right? Now think about that as we go into my next question, because this is, this is interesting. Let me get the question pulled up. This comes from Frank. Frank says, Jack, I was talking to one of my vegetarian friends who made the classic argument that it takes more energy and takes more ecological resources to grow food to feed cows and pigs and then feed those to humans than it does to simply feed the humans the things that we grow vegetatively. And they pointed out, and while I don't agree with them on all the global warming stuff, they pointed out that farming does do ecological damage, including the farming that grows the food that they eat. But the more farming we have to do, the more we have to do in fertilization, uh, soil damage, uh, it's just... I think he means pesticides there, herbicides, etc. As someone that doesn't like Monsanto, I found their argument at least a little bit compelling. I know you say we can do a lot of things with civil pasture and stuff like that, i.e. Mark Shepard, Jeff Lawton, but can we really do it? I've looked into a lot of this. People like Joel Salatin even feed their pigs corn, and they feed feed to their chickens as well, even though they have wonderful pasture. I guess we can feed cows 100% on grass, but can we feed everything 100% on grass? Do we need to? How could we actually feed the people of this country if we didn't use bread, other starches, and fruits as a primary source of our calories? Frank, great question. The answer is, well, first of all, we need to get off of the idea that if we don't get 100% perfect, it's not better. So Joel Salatin absolutely feeds corn to his pigs. Joel Salatin actually doesn't feed a lot of corn to his pigs, but... 
right at the end if they're not going to make weight? He throws corn at them until they make weight. Why? Because it's a good financial decision and because it has not harmed the quality of the pork itself. It's still amazing pork compared to anything else you're going to buy in the store. Okay? He does feed his chickens grain because chickens need a protein yield and a grain yield beyond what they're probably going to get from pasture. They do. It's, it's, it's the truth. But a chicken on pasture will consume maybe 60% of the grain that it would have to consume in a chicken house. So we've, we've already done better by 40% for the chicken. The pig we've probably done better for in the neighborhood of 70 to 75%. And the cow, as you say, can be fed 100% on grass. Right now, bison and lamb are generally grown 100% on grass. I don't even think it's legal to feed grain to bison if you're marketing bison meat in the United States and calling it bison. So we already know that that can be done. So it isn't like we have to do things the way that we are. Because right now, the other thing we need to understand is most cattle are grass-fed. What happens is ranchers grow the cattle on grass for as long as they can to get them as big as they can because they make more money the bigger the cow is. They reach a point where due to weather, because it takes 18 months to grow out a cow, to weather and because they just want to turn a profit now, it makes sense to ship them to, and sell them off not fully at weight. They go then through the sale barn, as Greg Judy would tell you, to uh, a CAFO. And at that CAFO, they are fed massive quantities of mostly corn but other grains, including soy and things like that. And this puts a lot of fat on them really quick. Now, I want you to think about that. These cows eat a vegetarian diet, <laughs> ruminating, which is what they're supposed to do, which means they have three stomachs, and they eat, and then they puke it back up, and they eat some more, and they choke it down. And they, in fact, they do that three times. And they grow into beautiful animals, very strong, and they have fat, but they don't have tons of intramuscular fat. To add weight, to sell for more, and to appeal to the consumer that likes a lot of marbling in their beef and do it quicker, We feed them corn and soy and sometimes throw away candy bars inside the wrappers. Yes, that is a real thing. I've seen it. And they very quickly, in a matter of weeks, put massive amount of marbled fat on. Now, this is to be done at the cow's right age to do it to get it to work perfectly where that cow is susceptible to putting a lot of mass on really quick. Kind of a teenage cow, right? 18 months. And then they sell that meat to you. This doesn't have to happen. All that cow has to do is stay on grass a little longer. We produce a little bit smaller of a cow with a little bit less fat on it. But if we want more fat on the cow, all we have to do is leave the cow out on the pasture longer. The most expensive beef in the world is, is, is Wagyu. And it's grown 100% on pasture. Now there's Wagyu Kobe where they do some other things, but I'm not I'm talking about the most expensive straight up. We haven't done anything magnificent to it other than take care of the cow right, Wagyu beef. And it's incredible beef. That's why they do Kobe with it, because it's so amazing, right? So we know we can grow the cow on grass. We know we're able to pig 70% on pasture. And we know we can grow the chicken, let's say, 50%. So if we start taking massive corn and bean and soy, et cetera, fields, and we start turning them back into pasture, and we start running our animals, beef, pork, and chicken in leader follower systems 
what will happen is those, those fields will get better and better and better every year. We may have to seed them at first. We may have to disc them. We may have to plow them to get them established. We may have to irrigate them. Some may need some level of irrigation at different times of the year to be maintained. Some may not need any irrigation at all once established. But if you're growing corn somewhere where you need to irrigate, irrigate perennial grasses, you had to irrigate the corn. You got me? You feel me? You had to. Now, what goes away? We don't have, once we establish the pasture, we no longer plow, so we're not running a plow. We no longer drill seed, so we're not running a seed drill, which runs on petroleum. Um, we no longer have to run a combine or a harvester, so we're not running that. Got it? Millions of acres no longer having those three massive diesel-powered implements run. We're no longer tilling the soil, so the carbon that ends up in the soil, if you're worried about global warming, stays in the soil. Agricultural runoff is one of the biggest pollutants on the planet right now, destroying the Mississippi River Delta with an expanding dead zone every year. You can look this up if you doubt me. But there's an entire area where the Mississippi River dumps into the Gulf for a number of months every year. All life there dies. It's a dead zone. That's why they call it a dead zone. It's 100% because of agricultural runoff. You put in pastures with lined fields of trees, and you kill the runoff to almost nothing, and you're not using any chemical fertilizers. The chickens are tearing up the cow and pig manure and processing it into the ground. They're eating the flies and bugs that come to feed on the manure. The whole thing is fertilizing. The cows, the chickens, and the pigs are rotated. They eat down the greenery to a certain level, and then it's managed. They have to move again. So we move them through a system like this. We never let them graze too much. It grows back. That's what perennials do. They grow back. The root systems of perennial managed pastures this way can go down into the soil over 20 feet of roots. We've got studies done where a guy's standing holding an annual plant, like corn, a big rooted corn, he's holding it up to his waist and the roots go to the ground, and there's a guy on a freaking ladder or a, a damn lift behind him, 15 feet over his head holding up prairie grasses and the roots go and touch the ground. What do you think does more for the environment, including carbon sequestration and soil building? Do you know what the number one export by tonnage from the United States is? By the way, we don't get paid for it. Nobody takes delivery of it. Topsoil. The number one thing this country exports is topsoil. Fact check me on that shit. That's true. By tonnage, this country exports more topsoil through wind and water erosion into our rivers, streams, and oceans than anything else that we produce. And by the way, we're not producing it as fast as it's going away. Eroding topsoil is number one ecological threat in the world as far as I'm concerned. Now, how do we feed these chickens and pigs long term and continue to reduce our dependence on grain and corn and soy, legumes, etc.? Well, we plant trees. Now, here's the funny thing about this. We don't have to restore the American chestnut, though it's a noble thing I'd like to see. We don't have to come up with a new crazy type of hazelnut because the people doing that Mark Shepard, they want a product to sell to the food industry I'm not looking for a product to sell to the food industry right now, I want to do that too we can grow lots of fruit in that system etc, and if the consumption of that all drops we can produce more than enough in systems like this, way more than enough 
without importing most of it like we do now, by the way. But chickens and pigs like to eat acorns. Now, we have to think about what we're doing here because cows can and will overeat acorns and kill themselves. But that can just be handled with, we graze the cattle in these areas during this time and not during this time. We can also come with ways to harvest the acorns and mill the acorns so that they can be used as feed, but the farmer, the rancher, can grow his own feed, mill his own feed, and control his own destiny and use a freaking like a 20th of the fossil fuel that he's using right now. So a, a couple acre field of black oil sunflower produce enough oil for biodiesel to run his farm equipment. And the farm could run itself. It can't do it tomorrow. This is a project that, you know, it's a 25-year project. The thing is, people say, well, acorns aren't very palatable. It depends. When we grow acorns like large white oaks, bur oaks, etc., They are highly palatable, low tannin acorns. They would still require significant processing for humans to eat them. But they store as easily as grain, and they need only be for chickens cracked open. They don't even need to be ground. They just need to basically be cracked open, and the chickens will eat them. The pigs will eat them the way that they are. So we could grow a civo pasture with one of our main tree crops being high-quality oaks. Now you have acorn-fed pig, grass-fed cow, and acorn-fed chicken. By the way, the most expensive pork in the world, they eat, the pigs eat acorns. Now if we add chestnuts to that, it just gets better. If we add apples, we add a high-carbohydrate crop for, for, for fattening our chickens with all the throwaway apples. Plus we have an apple cider crop. Plus we have a food apple crop. The idea that... A civopasture model, which mimics nature's savannas, which are the most productive land-based ecosystems in the world, can't feed human beings, but an artificially maintained, plowed up, destroy the earth, dump fertilizer and chemical on, system that grows five key species of plants in monoculture environments can, is the most unscientific and stupidest thing that the American people believe other than it's healthy to eat grains and fruits in large quantities. That's the only thing dumber than believing that the system that produces it is ecologically friendly in any way whatsoever infinity. That's how you answer your friend, who probably will not believe you because it requires an actual fundamental understanding of science, biology, and ecology, which none of these people talking shit about of it have. I have, it amazes me, the people that go on and on about global warming. Explain global warming to me. CO2 causes global warming. That's not even what the United Nations says. The United Nations says rising CO2 in the atmosphere has done all that it can directly to raise the temperature. It really does. IPCC says that. However, because of rising CO2, there are four different feedbacks. Those four feedbacks triggered by CO2 actually cause the temperature to rise. Okay, since you're the genius that tells me I'm not a scientist, you tell me, what are those four feedbacks? Uh, I don't need to know. Everybody knows. Wait a minute. That sounds to me like nobody knows. Maybe you should know what the hell you're talking about before you let words come out of your mouth. You know, seriously, like, maybe you should actually know. Research does not mean you read something that said the person that you believe is right. That's not research. 
Understanding the actual fundamental underlying science is what's important. And if you do that with global warming, for instance, you'll see that since 1989, the IPCC has been spouting this bullshit. And they have given prediction after prediction and climate model after climate model. And you know how many of their climate models have been right? None of them. And you know how many of them we have had lower temperatures than their model when you go across a total year? All of them. They haven't gotten any of it right. The rising sea level predictions. All of it's wrong. They haven't gotten one thing right. So when they don't get anything right, don't you start to at least say, hey, wait a minute. You didn't get anything right. You didn't get like half the stuff right and half the stuff wrong. You got nothing right. Maybe we should stop listening to you. But again, even if you believe cutting CO2 is the best thing we can do, then a natural savanna-based ecosystem for the production of human food that produces the food that keeps humans healthiest is what we should do anyway. Now, you might think, well, 25 years into a system like this, that's a long time. That's not a long time. In the scale of humanity, let alone the scale of ecology, 25 years is a mouse fart. And we can go really fast in five years, depending on how many people are willing to do it. But the beauty is, you would end up with grass-fed beef costing about a third of what it does right now, grass-fed pork costing about a half of what it does right now, and pastured poultry costing about, well, probably about a quarter of what it costs right now, which would put it right about where we buy factory chicken today, maybe about a 1.2, 20% premium over factory poultry because of the quantity that we would be producing. And there would be layers of quality. I mean, your mass-produced chicken from a system like this would be monumentously better than the chicken you get from Purdue or Tyson today. But the niche farmer who worked on small scale is still going to produce a better product. But, man, and what is the other side of this? Healthcare! Oh, my God, I want free healthcare! Ah. Maybe if we didn't have, like... 60% of the adult population in this country classified as obese, healthcare wouldn't cost so much. You think? Like, there's no, like, people say, well, with the Green Deal deal, there's, there's no downside to doing this. Even if we're wrong, we get free energy and this and that. And that. No, bullshit. You destroy the entire economy, not, a let, not a, let alone the entire concept of individual determination of self and liberty. But what I'm talking about, there is no downside. There's no downside. There's no downside to producing more food that's higher quality, that's less expensive for people to eat. Right now, no, ground beef, let alone ribeye, is not going to cost the same as a loaf of Wonder Bread. But that loaf of Wonder Bread is so subsidized right now by taxpayer money as it is. That loaf of Wonder Bread you buy for a dollar probably costs you four bucks. But what does it cost you to eat that Wonder Bread for 20 years in health expenses? We can, we can do this. This isn't that hard. And the people that still want to eat grain can. We right now, that's the other thing, we overproduce every agricultural commodity that the United States produces. We, every single one of them. We overproduce potatoes. We overproduce rice. We overproduce corn. We overproduce wheat. We overproduce barley. We overproduce soy. Those are your big ones. We overproduce them all. And because of that, when we have a trade war with China, farmers get hurt. Well, the reason is there's such a surplus of the food already. Trust me, if the cost of food goes up and the alternative is not eating, people pay more money for the food. 
We over. Why do you think we turned so much corn into ethanol? Why do you think they made a big push for that to save planet Earth? No, because they had too much corn they didn't know what to do with. The whole concept of fossil fuel usage is not even worth worrying about. Humanity right now is in the middle of a 50-year cycle. I would say we're in the middle. We're at the beginning of a 50-year cycle where there probably will be very little fossil fuel used by the time most people listening to me are old men and old women in the world. That's going to happen anyway. We are finding better ways to do things. We're not ready yet. There's a transition period. So we use petroleum, natural gas, nuclear is that transition medium. Like I said, with feeding livestock, we need to grow oak trees for 25, 35 years to do that. And think about, instead of doing something that we're trying to find a blight-resistant, blah, 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 oaks just grow. Anybody with a lawn and oaks around knows if you don't keep on it, every spring there's little oak trees growing everywhere. We don't have to do anything to keep them alive. They just grow. Doesn't that make sense to build a system on that? And the transition to the oaks is high quality for birds and pigs, grains and legumes. So we grow that in a transitional model and farmers come off of it. I'm not saying it's going to happen tomorrow. I'm not saying it's going to happen in the next 25 years. But I tell you what will make it happen. If enough people switch on to the nutritional reality of eating this way and say, I'm not buying your other shit, consumers drive industry in the end. Industry is really good at using marketing and force through government to drive consumption. They really are. Those two things, marketing does one side, and then whatever you don't get with marketing and advertising, you use government and subsidies and force. You get colleges teaching doctors to tell people to eat the garbage you produce, and gee, you'll sell it. And you get the government to buy that which you can't sell because you've overproduced. And then you get the government to mandate that industry turn it into something like fuel, which makes no sense from a, a return of energy standpoint, but they have to do it because you got that. But eventually, if consumers are like, I'm not buying your bread. I'm not buying your high high sugar fruits. I'm not buying it. And people just start making different consumer decisions. Guess what? They will have to change because if they don't, they will go bankrupt. And nothing changes an industry like a bankruptcy. But it's a full court, full press fight. I'm telling you right now. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. Damn worse. A lot worse before it gets better. Don't be surprised if two to three years from now that you are literally being attacked as the enemy of Mother Earth herself who wants to destroy Mother Earth, who wants to kill her and pour acid in her face while she dies because you ate a hamburger. You, I'm telling you. And by the way, isn't it funny that all of these ass clowns running for the Democratic nomination that embrace the, new, the Green New Deal, that they're in Iowa right now, like all of them flipping hamburgers and shit? It's just funny to me. I just thought you might notice that. Next up, two really quick life hacks here. David sent me an email. He said, hey, when the dryer has eaten your sock and you now only have one sock out of a pair to use uh, left, use it to store a ratchet strap in. It will keep a ratchet strap nice and neat and ready to use when you need it. Also, as you were mentioning Friday, a ratchet strap inside a sock to the face would effing hurt. That's a pretty cool idea. So you take old socks, even, like, you know what usually happens? You usually don't, I've never had the dryer eat my sock. What I have is, like, one sock has the heel blow out of it, and the other sock's not, right? So you take your old, unpaired socks, roll up your ratchet strap all nice and neat, and stick it in there. And I can see, I've never done that, but I can see right now how, like, if you reached in and grabbed the end, it would just pull out of there. And yeah, you're right. Talk about an improvised weapon. 
Ratchet strap in a sock to the face. Two of those suckers like nunchucks, man. Beat the shit out of somebody with those in. Why do you have those? Well, I keep my ratchet straps in them. Uh, next up, same guy, David, says, Are you tired of PV cement drying up before you need it again? Yes, David, I am tired of that. I'm very, 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 very tired of that. I hate that. I despise that. I even put my PVC cement tops back on with a pair of offset channel lock pliers as tight as I can, and it still happens. I hate it. By the way, I've gone to the primerless PVC cement. That is my hack for you. You can get it now at Home Depot, Lowe's, etc. They have a clear PVC cement. You don't use the blue or purple primer. It, just put it on, stick it together, and you're done. No blue shit everywhere. I've tried it. It seems to work just as good as the stuff with the blue shit. I was skeptical. It works. There's my hack added to this. But, yes, it still it freaking turns into a blob of freaking useless crap. So, David, what do you say to do about it? I've not tested it yet. Neither has he. But he said his friend says it works. His neighbor said what you do is you turn your can upside down. So you tighten your PVC cement can up, not with a pair of pliers, because then you need the pliers to open them. By the way, anybody that buys that stupid tool they sell to open those cans, you have a pair of pliers. Use the pliers. Anyway, you turn it upside down, and it doesn't go bad. I guess because it's laying on the top, no middle minuscule bits of air can get in. I, I don't know. Maybe because the inside of the can is coated. I, I don't know why, but he says it works. His neighbor said it works. And usually when you hear things like this, there's like a 9 out of 10 chance they're going to work. So he also says don't do that with the primer. <laughs> the primer will leak through and stain everything purple. Yes, I hate the primer. That's why if you get the primerless cement, maybe our problems are over for good. And, boy, that was worth tuning in today. Uh, that brings us to our final question of the day. And uh, Jeff says... Uh, let me look this up here. Jack, you said that impeachment is stupid. I believe that impeachment is stupid, too. Not just because it's stupid on its face, but because it's bad for the Democrats who are doing it. You said, in fact, you think it's cementing Trump's re-election. I saw your post on Facebook. I did say that. But I look at Nancy Pelosi, and as much as I detest this waste of human skin, she must not be that stupid. This woman's been in power since I was in grade school. If a person that's been in power that long doesn't do things this stupid unless there's a reason, can you give me a good reason for doing this other than they think it's going to work when it isn't? All of us know there is no way 67 senators are going to remove Trump from office. The Senate probably won't even have a hearing if they do it the last five minutes. This seems like a really bad idea. I can, t I can look at people like Jerry Nadler and say it's all they've got, but why would Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, who has so much to lose, Not only if Trump is reelected, but if the Republicans take the House back, do something this stupid. I've got it for you, dude. It's not as stupid as you think it is, even though it is. She's doing it because no one's talking about the squad in Ocasio-Cortez and the left-wing fringe of the party anymore. Have you noticed that since Nancy Pelosi was so stupid is to announce a formal impeachment inquiry after saying so many times there's, it's not a good idea to do, when they were waiting for a transcript to come out, that they knew would come out, that ended up being like, there's nothing there. By the way, there's a lie that you guys have to stop. Again, I don't like Trump. 
Okay? This is not a defense of Trump. This is a defense of truth. There is a lie that is continuously being stated on the main news networks. Even Fox has people saying it. Even they have people saying it's not true at the same time. And that don't just mean they're guests. Some of their commentators are saying this. That even though there was no quid pro quo in the, 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 the transcript of the, the discussion between Trump and the Ukrainian president about foreign aid in relation to the favor Trump asked for, which is, see if, can you see if, if Biden really was involved in a scandal? Because that's really what it was. Like, hey, check this out. And that's a totally legitimate thing, whether you believe it or not, for a president to ask. It's their country. It's their prosecutor. They get to decide whether it is or not. They get to decide whether it is and whether to prosecute it or not. Saying, hey, would you look into it? Not not treason. Sorry. Right? Um, but what people say is, well, the Ukrainian president mentioned the foreign aid, and Trump immediately mentioned that. No, he didn't. I know the MSNBC told you that. This never happened. I've read the transcript myself. The Ukrainian president states we're about to buy more javelin systems. Then Trump says that. See? See, Jack? No. The javelin systems, not part of the foreign aid at all. Nothing to do with the foreign aid at all. This is a separate purchase. This is basically the president of the Ukraine saying, hey, Mr. President of the United States, we're going to do a thing. We're going to buy some stuff from you, which is good for you. And Trump says, yeah, would you do this too? Not, hey, we would like our foreign aid now. And Trump says, hey, you want it? So this is not, it did not happen. There's not even the implication that it happened. If you know the facts, right? We need to know what the whistleblower said. The whole whistleblower reports there, go read it. But what it, you read from it is, I don't know jack all shit, but some people told me some stuff, right? So this is a bad idea. Pelosi got in front of it because she's not as stupid as it seems. If she would have waited till it came out, she would have had no cover to go ahead and do it. She's got massive pressure by the loons in the Democratic Party. I mean, they're all scum, but the loons of the scum to do this. It gave her air cover to be able to do it. This is it was her bridge too far is the word that she used. Well, now that she's done it, no matter how stupid she looks, as stupid as Pelosi is, she does know once you do something, you have to defend it unless there's an easy way out. There's no easy way out. So now she has to defend it. But what she's done is taken control of her caucus back. And here's what she's done. It's actually smart politically. It's, it's detestable. And, and all of these people should be like run through a leaf shredder or something. I'm just God. Um, at least attacked with a weed eater and slashed about the legs and face. I mean, all, all of them. Um, but what she's done is actually cunning, as much as I hate to admit it, because she's such a scumbag. She's not called for a vote on the inquiry. She's done the inquiry without a vote, and not a vote to see if should impeachment proceed. There's been two votes on impeachment proceeding in the House. They both died under Democrat control. Bad. Flamed out dead. They don't have the votes. With what she's done, her committees of idiots like Nadler, etc., can now subpoena the shit out of tons of crap and drag this out for months. If she called it to a vote and it failed, well, then you're screwed. Again, if she called it to a vote and it passed, you might think, well, that's, that's great. Well, that's not impeachment. That's a vote to proceed on the process of impeachment. Then that shoves you straight into a relatively quick contained trial. 
You have to present the evidence that the thing you say happened, happened, and then everybody has to vote yes or no. That's relatively short, and it limits how much time and how much resource and how much they can demand. Okay? But if she does what she's done, which is the akin of doing nothing, she empowers the committees of endless subpoenas, she shuts everybody up, and now Ocasio-Cortez and Ilya Omar and all these other idiots can't get the camera to point at them every time they say impeach Trump. Now she's neutered them. So Ocasio goes, we need to impeach Trump! And everybody's like, yeah, Pelosi said that. They're already doing that. You, you don't matter anymore. That's why Pelosi did it. She took back control of her caucus. She shut up the squad. And she put herself back front and center of the, of the issue of taking the White House back from Donald Trump. What I think is going to happen is what you indicated when you emailed me. Trump is going to destroy his opponent in 2020. It will make his victory in 2016 look like a joke. It's going to be Reagan-esque. It won't, well, that's not true. That's not the way to put it. Because Reagan's victory on his re-election was, it was bloody, nasty, awful. It won't be that big a victory. It will be very much like the victory Bush Sr. had in his first term when he inherited what he did from Reagan. It will be decisive. It will be something you can't say anything about. And that means impeachment in the second term is dead. You just you can't even talk about it anymore. I know you think it's like they'll never. No, they really they won't be able to. Now I'm sure they'll say he stole the election again or whatever, but it's it's going to be dead. And then you're going to have four years of lame duck instead of one, because they're going to just drag their feet on everything. Then the Democrats will take the House and the Senate in 2022, and Trump will give them everything they ask for. And then you're going to get a Democrat screaming left winger in 2024. That's what's going to happen. And that's why the impeachment thing for Pelosi is a no-lose. It seems stupid, but it's a no-lose. Because they either lose the House or they don't. doesn't matter. She's still, she's still set for life. She still has lots of power. If they keep the House and Trump gets re-elected, she's still the Speaker. She'll be able to stand on that. I, I kept the House. She's probably done in two to four years anyway. So she's near the end of her career. If... The impeachment goes through, but the Senate falters, I did my job. If the impeachment doesn't go through, we don't have the votes. But all in all, everybody's back looking at, at the Crypt Keeper, Nancy Pelosi. And if you want to look up Crypt Keeper, if, you don't, if you're not an 80s kid, you don't remember HBO back when HBO actually played movies and original things, look up the Crypt Keeper and Pelosi. If you put Crypt Keeper Pelosi, you'll find side-by-side -side pictures of them. So, you know, she has no lose here. If they impeach Trump, the Senate doesn't take him out of office, and they win the White House, she's a hero. No matter what happens, it works for her. Some would be better than others, but the big thing is she shut up the squad. They don't have anything to say now. There's nothing for them to say. No one will pay attention to them. And until there's some other big divide, no one will pay attention to them ever again. And that's why she made the political decision that she did. It's not as dumb as it looks. It's stupid, but it's not dumb. With that, we've wrapped up another episode. I want to remind you guys that one of the ways you can help support this show is become a member of the Member Support Brigade. This is how it works. You become a member, you get discounts, 
You get your money back and then some, and you make money by supporting the show. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on members to learn more. Next up, I want to tell you about our item of the day. This is an item of the day that you just heard about not long ago. It is made by a company called King Cooker. I had it like two and a half, three weeks ago. You might wonder why I'm bringing it back. It's a 12-slot leg and wing grill rack. I brought it back for a reason. This weekend, while my wife was away, I spent all weekend cooking almost 100 chicken legs for the fall workshop. I made a rub. Oh, did I make a rub. I made a glorious, glorious rub that includes 100% cocoa powder and Nicole sauce, awesome sauce, coffee, fresh ground coffee, and some other things. And I rubbed these legs with it, and I put them in this rack, and I put two racks at a time, 24 wings to a run, 24 legs to a run in the center of my grill. I turned on the two far side burners, and I put a packet of aluminum foil. And this beautiful mesquite smoke kissed them for an hour and a half, 275, until they cooked in the most beautiful way I've ever seen a piece of chicken cooked in my life. And I videoed it for you. And I thought, with that video, people are going to want this rack that I've advertised for three years now. It's like 12 bucks, And they're going to realize, like, that thing's 12 bucks and it does that? Gee, I should have got one a long time ago. So I put the video on Facebook over the weekend. And, like, every third comment was, where do you get that rack? Where do you get that rack? And I'm like... T-Spaz, T-Spaz.com. So I thought, I'll rerun it today. So I brought it back around, and uh, yeah, take a look at the video. You want this thing in your life. It does wings and legs like nothing else does chicken, period. And the video gives you a real understanding of how awesome this can be and how it can save you money by letting you batch cook for your family and then vacuum seal stuff, throw it in the freezer, it's already cooked, throw it in your sous vide and heat it up to temperature and throw it on a plate. I mean, I cover all of that in the video today. The King Cooker 12-slot leg and wing grill rack. That brings us to our song of the day, and I want to point out I'm not as dumb as I seem. Um, we had a, uh, a song uh, last week, and I said I had never heard of the guy that sang the song. And we were in the middle of Blind Singers Week, and the song was called God Please Give Me 50 More, and the singer's name was Jose Feliciano. And I got just berated by people telling me how stupid I was. Even John Adam, who puts a song list together, got on me a little bit. Because how do you not know who Jose Feliciano is? He's the guy that sings the Christmas song, Feliz Navidad. Oh, okay. In fact, if you would have said to me, who's the guy that sings Feliz Navidad, I probably would have said, uh, uh, Jose Feliciano, something like that. I probably would have even put it together. I didn't know he was blind. I had no idea the guy was blind. And I figured if he was blind and that song being played like 800,000 million times every Christmas season, somebody would have told me. No one ever did. So I, I knew, but I didn't know. That's an important survival lesson. People die when they have the things they need right there able to save them. So I don't think it's a big consequence that you don't know who Jose Feliciano is, but you might want to make sure you take a good assessment of the things that are around you and what can be done with them. Now, we are moving into a new themed week. Instead of Blind Singers, we have John Cougar Week. And let me tell you something. When I saw John Adam decided to do John Cougar Week, I'm like, no, I'm going to be calling an audible or two. Because there are some John Cougar songs that I dearly love. I'm an 80s kid. Are you kidding me? American Fool, that album, that was one of the biggest albums of the 80s, especially for long-haired punk kids like me. 
I mean, with, with jacked up cars and jacked up stereos that you thought were really cool because you could afford two Pioneer speakers uh, and a 20 or 40 watt amp from Radio Shack to go with them, right? So you thought you were a badass like that. And that's that, that was one of the albums everybody loved. But when I saw the songs that he picked, they may not have all been songs I would have picked, but like the ones that I wouldn't have picked, I, I think I'm just going to play his songs because he picked some really good ones. Uh, leading off, and this is a great song for this show, Authority Song. I fight authority, authority always wins. John said that when he wrote this song, it's kind of a modern version of I fought the law and the law won. But it's also the attitude of always being willing to rebel. You know, the thing is, you can find authority, and if you directly fight authority, authority usually will win. But if we take the quote from last week, the young man knows the rules, but the old man knows the exceptions, instead of directly fighting authority, we can design our lives, our businesses, and everything that we want to do around it as much as we can. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.